On today's episode, we are hitting Disney+. Plus. Is Hawkeye hitting the bullseye or way off the mark? Find out. The byword starts now. Ladies and gentle nerds, welcome back to another episode of the Nerd Byword Podcast, the only podcast that always, always hits its mark. I'm Dave, here with my buddy Chris, and in this week's Big Talk, we'll be talking about the Disney Plus series Hawkeye and whether it actually uh, fulfills our MCU cravings or not. But first, as always, it's time for... All right, Chris, it's time to talk about your favorite character being in the news an awful lot lately. Well, this is a multifaceted story after last night's developments. So uh, I'm going to color outside the lines a little bit. But after several months of cryptic comments and rampant speculation in advance of the highly anticipated Spider-Man No Way Home, it would appear that Tom Holland will indeed continue in the role of Peter Parker for the foreseeable future. Speaking with Fandango, producer Amy Pascal said... Quote, this is not the last movie that we are going to make with Marvel. This is not the last Spider-Man movie. We are getting ready to make the next Spider-Man movie with Tom Holland and Marvel. We're thinking of this uh, indicating as the Homecoming trilogy as three films. And now we're going to go on to the next three. This is not the last of our MCU movies. End quote. If this does indeed turn out to be the case, it will provide fans of the character an opportunity to see the character grow and evolve potentially in a way that is yet to be seen on screen. Tobey Maguire's Peter Parker was shelved after a disappointing third film, with Andrew Garfield's only lasting for two. Additionally, Webheads got their first look at the sequel to the Academy Award-winning film Into the Spider-Verse last night. In the trailer, we see that Miles has grown up a few years before being visited by his spider-crush Gwen Stacy, and then ambushed by Spider-Man 2099, Miguel O'Hara. But perhaps the most exciting news is the title reveal at the end of the footage that reads, Across the Spider-Verse, Part 1, October 2022. Needless to say, the internet subsequently lost its ever-loving mind, yours truly included, at the thought of an additional film and the speculation of which spider-powered characters may show up this time around. Dave, it is a good time to be a webhead. Yeah, I, I will agree with that. Given, of course, um, what we know uh, of the whole Into the Spider-Verse stuff and how the Spider-Verse has expanded in the comic books over the last few years, I think it's fair to say that there are a lot of opportunities for additional characters even um, beyond uh, Spider-Man 2099 to show up. I'm very, very interested to see where they go with this. There are some very interesting um incarnations of spider-man that we have not seen yet in those movies although i will say i can live probably without uh the version where aunt may was bitten by the spider i don't think we ever need to see that on the big screen ever 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 you know you're not a fan of spider ma'am no ma'am no (laughs) ma'am um (laughs) but um you know the tom holland thing and him continuing on potentially for another three movies is very interesting his Spider-Man has been very much defined by being a high schooler. 
Um, and I think it's really high time that you know, his version of Spider-Man gets to do some growing up. So if they really intend to do a second trilogy, you know, maybe we'll get you know, you know, him as a, you know, real photographer working maybe for the Daily Bugle, maybe we'll get some of those classic beats that maybe have been missing in the MCU a little bit, some of those classic characters, maybe we'll have, you know, an, an encounter with with Harry Osborn, I think that would be nice to see in the MCU. There are things um, about the MCU Spider-Mans that have always been a little sketchy to me in that they tried so hard in a lot of ways to be a little different from the classic Spider-Man mythos just because, you know, we had two previous movie series from Sony that hewed pretty closely to it. So kind of remixing some of those elements and letting, you know, Peter Parker grow up a little bit. I think it's really high time for that, Chris. Yeah, and and I think somebody said it on social media even that, would somebody please tell them, I think this, oh, this was when the um, the freshman year um, animated series was announced on Disney Plus Day. There's going to be a new you know, animated series that details yeah. more and more about the high school. And and someone poignantly said, would someone please tell them that the best Spider-Man stories are when he's out of high school? Like, and, and, and that's wholeheartedly my opinion. And so I'm very, very excited to see him graduate and move on into young adulthood. Um, my favorite, you know, Spider-Man stories are when he is out of high school and kind of out on his own and, trying to that's when i relate the most you know just just to constantly go back to you know a 15 16 year old superhero like it, it's just kind of a snake eating its own tail and you know even with um you know the mcguire and garfield you know franchises that was extremely limited um you know for one reason or another so to be able to kind of give this you know, kind of some room to breathe and admittedly to a character, even in the comics that has, has been extremely limited in the allowed growth, you know, with uh, as, as far as the character of Peter Parker, you know, with one more day and all these things that really, um, as my friend Ash says, you know, keeps him in this Peter Pan mode where he cannot grow up. I'm, I'm very excited to see like some, some extra, you know, room for growth because I, I think the world of Tom Holland in this role, I think he's very, very talented. I would still um, give the nod to Andrew Garfield, but that time has passed. So I'm excited to see where we go from here. Does it have to be passed though? Is, is kind of my question. Can't we have our cake and eat it too? I mean, if the rumors are to be believed that, you know, Toby and, and Andrew are going to pop up in, in, uh, no way home as some kind of you know multiversal cameo don't you think sony would be willing in some ways to kind of go back to that well and try to milk that again if if there's a you know positive enough response and we could have mcu spider-man running on the one hand and then sony having like a revival movie of like an older toby Maguire or an older andrew garfield do you do you think they would go to that well chris i think there's a possibility especially you know even though it's in the animated um section of of the the film universe the the introduction of the multiverse and also here with no way home uh as it would appear my my only reservation is how awful the media and the fandom has been towards these actors, which just continuing to harass them about, are you going to be in there? Um, particularly Garfield, it would seem, um, you know, with, with his new Netflix, you know, he's doing a press tour for his new Netflix film that looks fantastic. And I can't wait to check out. Um, I, I almost don't wish that upon them. 
for for how hard they've been harassed by fans and the media. Yeah, fans suck. Just kind of across <laughs> the board. Wait, no, wait, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Um, yeah, I I think I think they've kind of taken that in stride. I mean, there there there's good and bad in in sort of the nerd world fandom, but on the other hand, I, I would be interested to see. I'd almost be interested to see, a, a, you know, a Spider-Man four with Tobey Maguire sort of bringing it a little bit into more modern sensibilities with an older Peter Parker, you know, kind of taking stock of his life. I think there's a really cool story there if Sony were willing to go to that well. But yeah, you're right, Chris. It's just a really, really good time to be a webhead. Yeah, for sure. All right, Dave, what is on the news docket for you this week? Oh, so um, Bloomberg uh, is reporting that Sony is getting ready to try to compete with Xbox Game Pass with its own subscription service. Um, from the report, the current plan is to combine PlayStation's cloud-based gaming service, which is PlayStation Now, with the monthly free game uh, the, uh, games that are offered, which uh, is PlayStation Plus. They would probably end up calling the whole thing PlayStation Plus, although right now the new subscription service is apparently codenamed Spartacus. Um <laughs> Sorry. I, my, Sorry. My ex, my exact reaction, Chris. Sorry, that was a that was reaction. a for 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 our 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 uh social media obsessed crowd. That's that's a blind react. I did not know that. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> so so anyways, the idea is that'll come with uh various flavors, so the cheapest tier uh will be very much like the current uh, PlayStation Plus service. The second tier will add PS4 and eventually PS5 games. And then a third tier will offer extended demos and game streaming as well as PS1, PS2, and PS3 games and perhaps even PlayStation Portable games. So uh, the launch date right now uh, doesn't seem horribly clear. They're thinking sometime in the spring, perhaps. Um Obviously, Sony is, you know, uh, jealously eyeballing those uh, 18 million subscribers that Xbox Game Pass has garnered now. Um, And can you blame them? Uh, Game Pass is one of the number one selling points to me of the whole Xbox ecosystem. It's so very, very well done, especially with backwards compatibility and, you know, having those exclusive games day and date on the service. It seems unclear right now if Sony will match that element of the service so the new game being available on the service day and date um which you know does does crimp you know sales a little bit but then again you know you you make that up in subscriber numbers and 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 their and their fees um so yeah i think you know in some ways this is a little late to the party they took a, a very long time to to figure out how to counter xbox game pass considering the sucker's been around since 2017 now uh, which means it'll be five years of Xbox Game Pass before PlayStation tries to actually actively compete with it. I think the only real draw here is that highest tier, depending on what that'll cost, uh, offering PS1, PS2, PS3, and PlayStation Portable games. Um, you know, there are, there are some fantastic older games that have been left out in the cold for a very long time now. There's no real way to play them unless you whip out the old you know, PlayStation. Um, and offering those, I think, may draw in a sizable crowd, especially, you know, if if they slap on some of those exclusives from those various systems. Um, but beyond that, this, this just seems like very, very late to the party. Uh, they kind of let Xbox innovate and iron out all the kinks. And now they're going to swoop in and say, look what we got, which, you know, seems to be um, the current Sony model is very less about innovating and more about 
duplicating. Chris, what are your thoughts on this whole story? My my immediate thought is that Principal Skinner meme from The Simpsons, pathetic. <laughs> I mean, like <laughs> it's like you said, it's so late to the party. It's like uh, you you kind of want what other people um, have you know monetized and made successful, and then you just want in on the game. But uh, it's it's too little, too late, man. I'm telling you what, man. I am living my best life right now when it comes to Game Pass. I am rediscovering all of the fallout games and the fact that it's a Bethesda, you know, Xbox and Microsoft have that Bethesda exclusive. I have no plans to do anything, but play all of the Bethesda games for right now. I I've, I've poured way too much time more than I care to even comment in fallout Four, and, uh, haven't even really tapped into 76 or new Vegas yet, but I, I'm, between, between the, the library that game pass offers, in addition to the Microsoft rewards, um, you know, and all this time, all we had from Sony was just them thumping their chests with God of War and the Spider-Man games and exclusives. But now we've got Halo, uh, Halo Infinite coming out. The beta is already out there. You can play that. So like if, if you're, you know, feeling the nostalgia, you can you can you can chomp right into that. But like I'm living my best life right now with Game Pass and I am not jumping ship anytime soon. Well, it's been a hot second since I had a chance to actually sit down and really play a game. Still waiting for my son to get a little older. Um, but uh, game pa- my Game Pass subscription goes through like 2023, I think, at this point. Um, I-, I have no intention of abandoning this thing. And in fact, uh, will continue to re-up it just because I'm a huge fan of the service. And really, I think the one thing that we can say about Microsoft in this whole Xbox situation is that after the, the pretty much disastrous announcement and launch of the Xbox One, they have built a culture that is very much consumer-focused. Um, they've definitely tried to sort of ride the ship. They listen to um, their fans. They, they listen to the players. They try to create an environment that is as, as friendly to, to gamers as possible. Um, and I don't think that's always the case with Sony. Um, just looking at how willing Xbox was in talking about, you know, stuff like um, cross-play, for example, or even after they bought Minecraft, you know, continuing to let Minecraft exist on other systems. Um, I, I think it comes right down to it that the, the whole ecosystem, the whole environment, I feel right now is a little more gamer-focused at uh, Microsoft and Sony. Maybe this is an attempt for Sony to start riding the ship, and maybe this is going to be the point where we see sort of a a changing uh, of Sony's attitude a little bit more into that same direction to try to, you know, appeal to some of the people who really enjoy the ecosystem at Xbox right now. But I I feel like it's not a sea change. It I feel like it's going to be business as usual at Sony with yep. this being like the, the imitation to try to capture some of those sweet, sweet dollars. Yeah. It, I get very much the vibes of, of Sony and some of their consumers, in fact, of just resting on their laurels and we're like, well, this is the way it's always been. And, you know, just kind of thumping their chest. And, you know, meanwhile, Xbox is over here giving us AAA games at no additional cost on the, on the day that they're released. So, I mean, um, what's what's the new one? Back for Blood. Uh, it's still online only, so that's frustrating. But I mean, if if that's your, you know, 
game du jour go for it but you know other games like that are being released at no additional cost on the first day like you can't you can't top that yeah yeah i totally agree chris all right folks that's it for nerd news when we come back from our first break it's time for the big talk and we will be talking hawkeye now three episodes into its six episode run what do we think of the series stick around to find out and we're back ladies and gentle nerds it is time for the centerpiece of the nerd byword. It's time for the byword. And it is definitely going to be a big talk because we are going to dive headfirst into the first three episodes of the six episode series hawkeye now that we have hit the halfway point of the series we're going to take stock what do we like what do we not like what has worked what has not worked as always when we review a movie or television series we each picked three things we particularly liked and three things we really did not like or that we thought uh, kind of came up short a little bit so chris you're going to go ahead and get the chance to go first here what was your first major like of hawkeye so far well, to be fair, I let you get the first one because it's just spectacular and, and splendiferous and we we could just talk about your first like forever. But my first like technically uh, is, is just a, a character that is new to me that I've heard a lot of buzz about in comics Twitter that I really am just now obsessed with after their first appearance. And I'm talking, of course, about Maya Lopez, a.k.a. Echo. I am just blown away. And for this to be Alakwa Cox's first ever acting appearance, I, I just, I'm absolutely floored. Um, you know, and we talked about this with Makari um, in The Eternals and having representation from, from individuals that are um, deaf or hard of hearing or individuals with disabilities, um, Echo being both uh, an individual with a prosthetic and um, also hard of hearing. It's just absolutely so inspirational and so powerful to see her overcome all of these things and to be the head of this organization and everything. And I'm just dying to know more. So episode three, which we just got, was the first real appearance. We saw her at the end in a tease of episode two, but episode three was like her coming out party. And I, I'm not a big daredevil reader. So this character is completely new to me. I know that she's um, also like become the new um, uh, arbiter of the Phoenix force and has really had a glow up in the comics. So I'm, I'm just obsessed with this character. Now I'm a super fan of the character just off this one episode. And I think everything is awesome about this character. And I will echo your sentiments. Hey! There, Chris. Hey! Yeah, so I was very, very pleased with uh, this character's appearance as well. Um, I think there's a lot uh, going on here, I think, as far as um, dealing with, um, you know, challenges in your life, you know, with, with Clint Barton's hearing loss, uh, Echo being deaf and, and, you know, having a prosthesis. I think these kinds of things... Uh, they they kind of serve like a nice undercurrent in this series. There's a lot to be said about, um, for example, 
um, her chastising Clint about over relying yes. on technology. Yes. Love um, that. Yeah, there there is there is something there that that feels um, almost thematic to the series. You know, I think like this. I hope that comment goes further as the series progresses. You know, with him maybe leaning into you know learning more sign language. It's also the thing with the trick arrows. I think um, we. <laughs> And I'll talk more about that later. We haven't had a chance to see him use a lot of trick arrows, but they leaned in very heavily here. And that coming right after her comment of him leaning too much on technology, I thought was extremely interesting. And and I think there there's more to explore there about Clint. And I think if we have a chance to see, and I hope with only three episodes left we do, those characters interacting in meaningful ways, I think there's a lot that Clint has to learn in this series about himself. And I think Echo is, is in a lot of ways the perfect character to help him learn those things. But even beyond that, even, you know, taking, you know, the, her role in like Clint's journey out of the equation for a second, she's on her own very fascinating journey. Um, and it makes you wonder uh, what else is going on here with her, you know, going into this criminal criminal life that her, her father was clearly in. It didn't seem like that's what he wanted for her um, from the flashbacks we gotten. Um, so clearly she's on some kind of path of revenge. And is she going to be able to get off of that path? Is, is, you know, is there a better path for her, uh, in in this, you know, in the series? And I, and I sure hope so, because I want to see more of her, Chris. Now here's, here's a little tease. And there's been a lot of rampant speculation that, um, Vincent D'Onofrio's Kingpin will show up in this series. And so just a quick Google search of the character, you can see that Echo is the adopted daughter of Kingpin. And there's also a scene, um, in one of those flashbacks where she's a young child and there's a rather meaty hand, shall we say, touching her face. So that, that has played up a lot of speculation as well. The kingpin described as meaty may be my new favorite thing. <laughs> I think if he ever gets a solo series, we should call it uh, a meaty story. I really like this. Um, but yeah, you know, I've, I've heard a lot of that speculation as well. And I want to talk a little bit later about, you know, the teases for the second half of the season and what we might still be, you know, expecting. But uh, I certainly think the Kingpin connection is very interesting. And I don't think anybody would uh, disagree that Vincent D'Onofrio did an incredible job as Kingpin and it was one of the standout things about the Daredevil series on Netflix. So uh, here, here's hoping we get to see him in that role again. Okay, so between uh, the Across the Spider-Verse news and now your first like, it's uh, Haley Steinfeld Stan podcast, if you will. Oh my God, it's Haley Steinfeld's world and we're all just living in it. Um, I've been a huge fan of hers uh, since I saw her uh, in True Grit, uh, I think the Coen Brothers directed the remake. What a True movie! Grit. Oh God, I love that movie so much. And and I I remember seeing that in theaters and just being absolutely floored by her performance in that movie. Just just completely and utterly floored. And and she has only um she's only gotten better as she's matured. Now you know her music I can take or leave. It's not really exactly you know my cup of tea. Although she's you know you're not a, starving. A you're not starving. No, no. I mean, she's she's a she's a fine singer and all that, but but I think her acting is really where it's at. As far as I'm concerned, she almost single handedly uh, saved uh, the Transformers franchise with her work in the Bumblebee movie, which is really the only Transformers movie that I find remotely watchable. The writing on that one was also very good, uh, and the directing as well. But her her relationship with 
uh, with Bumblebee in that movie sold me again on the whole Transformers franchise and really is the kind of you know relationship that Sam Witwicky should have had uh, with with the Transformers. But but those movies were just so. Uh, let's not even one of these days, maybe we'll sit down and talk about the Transformers movies on here. I have some things to say. Um, but yeah, let's, let's talk just about Haley Steinfeld as Kate Bishop for a second, you know, an absolute, you know, perfect character. Um, so interesting, so many nuances going on there, you know, her, her pain of the loss of her father, her throwing herself into, you know, martial arts and archery, the, the whole thing where she kind of worships Clint, but at the same time, you know, becomes increasingly critical of him as the series <laughs> progresses. I find I find that that give and take um extremely interesting. There's there's a little bit of hero worship there, but at the same time she, you know, will sit there and rant at him about communication, uh, you know, for a good solid 2 minutes. I find that incredibly interesting. Her performance is is, is just spot on. I will say it feels a little different in some ways from the Kate Bishop of the comic books. I did a little bit of my homework and read, you know, some of her appearances. And although she was a a fan uh, of Hawkeye's, I guess you could say, I don't think it was kind of this this almost fangirly thing. It feels like there's a little bit of um, a little bit of Kamala Khan in her with that. I mean, she's not at home writing, you know, like fan fiction or something. But there's just it seems like the the fan Enos is a little heightened in this series over uh, her behavior in, in, in her early appearances in the comic books, maybe. But I think overall the character just absolutely works. Um, and it would be a crying shame. I hope that Marvel has locked her in some kind of like 8 billion year contract. It would be a crying <laughs> shame if this is the only time we get to see her. I, I want, you know, and I know there's rumblings of like Young Avengers and all that. And to me, that's like, you know, pff, okay, fine. I'll watch Young Avengers. But I think Kate Bishop as a character has proven fascinating enough that I would like to see her in an Avengers movie. I would like to see her, you know, bump shoulders with you know captain marvel and and with with you know the new captain america and and that whatever whatever shape the new avengers will take can you imagine kate bishop interacting you know with with spider-man for example i think there would those would be some really fun interactions there's this is just a character that i want to see bump up against some of the 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 big names besides just hawkeye that you know bumping into the avengers and working with them would be absolutely wonderful i just love this character top to bottom i've always been a big fan of Haley steinfeld's and and seeing her you know knock it out the mcu like that is just a huge pleasure yeah i i'm a huge fan of the character as well and believe it or not it was you know the the avengers game uh has been much maligned but i think one of the one of the the um, the hits was Ashley Birch's performance uh, as Kate Bishop. So I'm a huge fan of the character, and I can't I can't think of a more pitch perfect uh, pitch perfect casting for this character. I mean, like this is this is just everything. Um, you know, like I, I I I totally agree. It's a little bit it's a little bit leaning too much into the fangirly business, but I think that's probably like a rehabilitative uh, thing to kind of give Clint where Clint has kind of been underserved in previous, you know, iterations as far as having his time to shine. So I think maybe some of that fangirliness is to kind of prop him up just to kind of get him kind of 
chopped down to size when she kind of actually builds this relationship with him. But yeah, I love I love everything about Haley Steinfeld's performance here. Uh, shouts to Lucky the Pizza Dog, who is the best of boys. Um, yeah, so I'm I'm a, I'm a super fan. Yeah, uh, to- totally agreed. All right, Chris, what is your next like of the Hawkeye series? Well, maybe it's just the nerdy dad in me, but these family emotional notes are absolutely hitting me in the core. Between uh, Echo's relationship with her father, the heartbreak there um, to... Like, I know exactly what they're doing with Clint being home for Christmas, but, you know, it's it's very telegraphed, but doggone it, it's, it's working. Um, so uh, particularly the scene where he's FaceTiming with his son and he can't hear him because his hearing aids just been destroyed. Um, and, and, uh, Kate is having to transcribe for him and I, it just got me, I got incredibly emotional. Um, and, and so this whole, this family man dynamic that, um, that has, has made him markedly different than the Clint from the comics for, for better or for worse, I think um, there's a there's a lot to be uh, there's a lot to left be desired for the MCU inter- iteration of Clint from you know big fans of the comic character, but I think you know they really are are making it sing when it comes to being this family man here, um, and and just so like I, I think they're really nailing the emotional notes here. Yeah, you know, say what you will about Joss Whedon, and we can say a lot. I mean. I mean, we could we could have a whole podcast episode about Joss Whedon, um, but I actually always liked um, the change of having Clint being a family man. I think it you know served as a um, important distinction between him and the other Avengers at that point, and and really helped make him even more of an an everyman. Um, despite you know his work you know with Shield and all that, he was basically you know, just, just a regular dude in a lot of ways, you know, just wanting to get home to his family at the end of the day. And I think that was something that was sorely needed when you have, you know, Asgardian gods and World War II era super soldiers and Russian super spies and all that stuff, you know, flying around him. Something that allowed that whole situation to be grounded a little bit, I think was sorely needed. And one of my favorite parts of Age of Ultron is still when he brings the Avengers home to his family. Um, So I think the family dynamic thing was a good idea overall. They just never did much with it um, until they basically fridged his family and let him go off the deep end for a little while. And then they brought his family back. This is, I think, in a lot of ways, the best iteration of Clint. Um, and I'll talk more about that in a second. But really, I totally agree that the, the whole family thing works exactly the way it should. And I'm really pleased that they didn't destroy his family because I know in the lead up to the f- release of the first episode, there was talk that, you know, his wife d- doesn't appear in the trailers. It's just him and the kids. And are they getting a divorce? And he's just, you know, having a weekend with the kids or something. Um, so I'm, I'm very pleased that they didn't take that route. And, you know, kind of his goal in this whole series is just kind of being home for Christmas. I I think that works extremely well here. Uh, Also, I think it works because Linda Cardellini is absolute perfection. And um, if I had one nit to pick that it's probably due to her schedule or whatever, but but Marvel needs to back up the Brinks truck and just give her more spotlight because she's absolutely fantastic. 
Also, I think one of the biggest, um, you know, requirements of rehabilitation is whatever that terrible mohawk was in Endgame for Clint. So, like, that's uh, that's probably what we have to rehabilitate the most. Yeah, yeah, that hairstyle was questionable. And I think we need to also be very clear about the fact that it is impossible at this point not to predict that his family will get involved somewhat. I mean... Echo already told one of her minions to to look into Clint Barton. They're going to figure out that he has a family, and then you know they're going to be in peril at some point. I don't think this is going to be one of those things where we don't see them till he he walks into the house for Christmas or something in the last episode. I would I would be shocked if they don't put them in peril in some way before this is over. All right, Dave, what is your second big like of this series so far? Maybe it's that I love the underdog, but I always liked Hawkeye, and I always felt that the character was extremely underserved on the big screen. Um, he he always felt, in a lot of ways, like sort of an afterthought. Um, and some of the thing, some of the things they did with him were always, you know, extremely questionable. I mean, if you think about it, his first appearance on the big screen, he spent like over half of the movie brainwashed. And, and on the side of the bad guys. We never really got a good sense of who the guy was in, in, in the first Avengers movie. You know, then Age of Ultron tried to add a little texture. Um, and then, you know, with the whole family thing. But after that, he kind of fell to the wayside again until they they fridged his family. And then he goes off the deep end only to, you know, be persuaded to come back and all is forgiven. And it's just the whole situation was just odd. The character always seemed like an afterthought in a lot of ways. And I think this is this is exactly what Hawkeye needed. And it's just so, such a shame that it'll probably be one of the last times or maybe even the last time that we see this iteration of Hawkeye um, because it seems to me like they're trying to wind the character down a little bit. So, you know, giving him a chance to shine and actually take the spotlight is, you know, very much needed. And I really like this sort of, you know weary i'm tired of this crap attitude that he's kind of carrying the whole time like he seems well and truly done with this whole superheroing thing and he got pulled back in and he really doesn't want to be there like everything is just an imposition he is just so over it all um i I think that's (laughs) such a cool attitude for hawkeye to take i also really like the development that they brought in you know his hearing loss into the mix and did a really good job explaining it you know, so it didn't feel like it was coming out of the left field. These sorts of things, you know, add, add texture to a character. And the fact that, you know, they could have done, you know, you know, they could have included even like the stuff on hearing loss much sooner. But, you know, it would have not been a, a big imposition on like the runtime of the Avengers movies or something to, to add a couple of scenes of that. But again, he was always an afterthought. And so seeing him shine right now, I, I'm really, really enjoying this. Yeah, it's 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 even in fact it's even a little bit meta that like during the Rogers the musical like Hawkeye's the one kind of left out of the mix. So, it's like they they know exactly what they're doing. So, yeah, I'm, I I would totally agree with that the trajectory of the character is just all over the place and you know, for most of the previous, you know, appearances, he's been you know, directly it's in direct connection with his relationship with Natasha. And so, you know, while, while I did appreciate one of the things I appreciated about the Vage Ultron and the family and all of that jazz, um, you know, was, was giving him some kind of distinction beyond just another military dude. Um, you know, so, um, yeah, it, it's, it's, 
I think I think it's they know exactly what they're doing storytelling wise, and um, and I think it's been really really effective. Yeah, absolutely, and I think the characters is coming out stronger uh, out of these episodes, which again makes it sad if they don't you know continue to utilize him in some way in the MCU. It would be such a shame if the moment the character really started clicking is the moment we stop seeing him. All right, Chris, what is your third and final like of the Hawkeye series? I really love, and we talked about this, uh, you know, a good deal ago of like, what do we do with the MCU now? Like, what's the direction we want to see? And we kind of hinted at this and then we speculated a bit more once we got some of the reveals, but like this real leaning into like a sub genre, you know, Ant-Man, you know, was a heist film, uh, you know, Endgame was a time heist, you know, WandaVision was this sitcom subgenre type thing. And then, you know, Loki was this kind of romp about, you know, realities and just all over the place. And I think this show is also really nailing the subgenres, this whole buddy cop dynamic that you have between Clint and um, and Kate. You know, it's 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 a very not not so subtle, you know, lift from like something like Lethal Weapon. I think you kind of hinted at this earlier. It's like I almost expect uh, expect Clint to say, "I'm getting too old for this." Like it, it's it's you know it's it's really. Uh, pitch perfect here so far and that's a pun intended you know Haley steinfeld pitch perfect see what i did there um and then you know like this whole holiday holiday dynamic you know i think you know somebody even pointed out that it's like this might be like added to the list of things that you watch around the holiday time you know come december it's going to be a thing you kind of revisit and um so i'm really enjoying like how they're they've weaved this uh pretty masterfully in my opinion yeah, and I'll I'll agree with that. I mean, it's it's you know there's been some comparisons even made to like Die Hard and the whole like you know being pulled into a situation you don't want to be in around Christmas time. And my favorite you know. Christmas movie. Oh God, do I love Die Hard? It's it's one of the best. And did you have to mention Pitch Perfect because you know by the time Haley Steinfeld came around in the Pitch Perfect franchise, the franchise was already on the decline, my friend. <laughs> I I don't. Yes, yes, I've watched all three Pitch Perfects, okay? I, I'll freely admit it. But two that's and your three marital, were... That's your marital dues. I, I will say that I think part one was actually a fairly enjoyable movie, whereas parts two and three never recaptured that glory, um, which I think is regrettable. But but that's jo- neither... Join us way. next week for our deep dive on the Pitch Perfect trilogy. <laughs> I'm, I'm there for it, man. But, uh, but, but to kind of circle back around, um, you know... I really think the the genrefication of the MCU is sorely needed. As you mentioned, we've talked about that before. Leaning into the idea of like a holiday action movie in the vein of Die Hard is an absolute genius move. I, I hope that they continue leaning into sub subgenres the way they have been. Um, you know, we've heard rumblings that um, Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness is going to be like the closest thing that we've gotten to a horror movie in the MCU, which gets me very excited. Um, yeah, I just, I really, really love this. Um, lean into those subgenres. This Marvel, keep doing it. You're, you're, you're striking gold. And and we got to find you some time to escape to the movie theater and see the Eternals because while it did not land with some people, they really went for another genre, this biblical epic. Um, this historical epic it, it was very much like 
something like out of the Old Testament that they were trying to to, to tell. And, you know, it, it, we kind of hit on this last week with, you know, um, you know, people wanting action all the time. And, and that was one of the things that they kind of shied away from with the Eternals. So uh, I can't wait to talk about that film as well, because it's another really leaning into genre specific type thing that I, I personally enjoyed. Yeah, I'm I'm definitely looking forward to checking that one out. It's been pretty divisive, and I'm just I can't wait to sink my teeth into it and figure out what's going on with that movie. All right, Dave, what is um your third and final like of this series so far? The future. I I think we have you know three episodes left, and we've been promised some stuff either through teases or or whatnot, and I think there's a lot to look forward to, and I really like that you know there's there's been at least a few seeds planted. Uh, of what we have to look forward to here. I think for one, the thing that uh, some fans seem to have forgotten is that the new Black Widow is most certainly going to show up in this in this season. Um, there's just no way that, that she's not. Yelena Belova is going to be here because she's coming after Clint. And if this is really Clint Barton's swan song, then that interaction has to happen. My guess is in the next couple episodes or so. And that is something I'm immensely looking forward to. Because here's a character, a fairly new character to the MCU that has worked incredibly well in her first appearance. And hopefully we get to see her bounce off a of Clint and bounce off a of Kate and continue just being the standout character. If she continues to do that, then obviously, um, you know, there's bright future ahead. Um, and then, of course, as we've mentioned earlier, it's the hints of Kingpin. And I think if we get an appearance of Vincent D'Onofrio's Kingpin and <clears throat> spoilers... Um, considering the leaks that we have gotten of a possible, you know, Matt Murdock uh, appearance in uh, Spider-Man: Far From Home, I think what we're—I mean, uh, No Way Home—too uh, many home titles. I think what we're getting is sort of a resurgence of some of those Netflix characters, which I think is sorely needed. There have been some excellent performances. Uh, and excellent characters represented and bringing some of those actors back, picking sort of the best of the best uh, is a fantastic idea. So really, to me, the future of Hawkeye looks bright. Um, On a side note, if you guys are bringing back Netflix heroes, please bring back Kristen Ritter's Jessica Jones. Like, like I'll pay. I will. You will have, you will have my money, any project that she's involved in again, uh, I know Daredevil was sort of the critical darling, but I absolutely adored uh, Jessica Jones. I, I, I love that show and I love that character and I've read all of her comic book appearances and just, just please more Jessica Jones. It's just my plea at this point. Yeah, I think the thing that I have been most impressed and most excited about is this influx of amazing female characters in the last, in this, in this phase four of the MCU. I mean, like, <clears throat> say what you like you can feel however you want about wanda maximoff but like that was you know a star performance um agatha harkness uh you know was was a superstar as well so much so that that she's getting her own uh sh- show uh on on disney plus so um and then you go to sha ling who admittedly we talked about on our review of shang chi was was underutilized but it seems like is going to be poised for a starring role in an, uh, in an, in her own right. And then Yelena, what, I mean, now Kate Bishop, it's just, it's such a great, great development to have all of these female characters just shining and shining and shining. Um, 
I, I would totally echo that. Um, I would love to see Mike Coulter's Luke Cage return. Um, uh, Finn Jones, just go back and we, we'll just pretend that Iron Fist never happened. Um, and uh, I think I think it would be interesting too. And I think it, it, it I think it's um, probably. I mean, we're looking at another street level character coming in Moon Knight which everything about that looks incredible and amazing. So I really, just my gut reaction um, is, is, is very excited for what's to come. Yeah, not just within the show, but I think MCU period. I think there's some stuff to look forward to. All right, this means we're switching gears. Time to talk about some dislikes or nitpicks. Uh, Chris, what do you got? All right, so I, it, at the risk of sounding redundant and just, you know, whatever, but we've we've talked a lot about um, creators not being adequately compensated for their work, um, and I think one of the most blatant uh, ripoffs of a creator is the the artwork of David Asia from you know his work on the Hawkeye series with Matt Fraction, his artwork being directly used in the run-up and in the promotion for this film. And from what we can tell, what we know is no additional compensation. I mean, like everything about the promotional art, the intro scenes are a direct lift of David Age's artwork. And it's just, it, it's one thing to pull from the source material and, you know, with something like, you know, Ed Brubaker and Winter Soldier, but just to directly lift the the art style and down to the font and everything of a creator and not offer them additional compensation, I just think that's a terrible, terrible look. Yeah, you know, I think there's there's something really to be said for the continued um, artist erasure that is happening. I saw on social media a cover for like a a magazine about the history of Spider-Man or something. And it had a big blurb on the front, how Stan Lee created Peter Parker. And I'm like, dude, you know, there was an artist involved there too. Maybe we should keep that in mind. Um, so I, I don't know what is going on with the translation of, um, you know, comic books towards, you know, television and the big screen and, and Hollywood, but it seems like they very much latch onto the writer and completely forget, you know, the artist, but at the same time, they don't mind literally, as you've pointed out, lifting design work, um, logo designs, everything directly from the art uh, that these artists have produced. It is it is a very, very bad look. Um, I even think like if you look at the credits, uh, David Aja ends up being like in the special thanks section or something, um, where, whereas um, Matt Fraction actually pops up much sooner in the credits um, as like a consultant or something. So I, I think just the whole thing is a really, really bad look. And it's a, just a continued problem of, of artist erasure as, you know, these properties make the jump uh, onto the big and small screen and out of the comic books. And it is, it just, it needs to stop. Yeah. I mean, there's nothing I could add to that. It's just, <clears throat> like I said, it's it's one thing to pull from the source material, but it's it's like they're doubling down here. And it's just, it's it's, to be honest, it's a little bit gross. Yeah, I totally agree. All right, Dave. Um, what is your first dislike of the series so far? Dude, this is a nitpick, and I'll freely admit that, but it needs to be said. You know, a uh, standard sort of uh, series that runs on television um, runs about 42 minutes. 
um, with about 18 minutes for breaks for like commercials and stuff. So on average, you get between 42 and 44 minutes of, of an average television show. Um, then came the promise of streaming. And one of the things that, that writers and directors always like to talk about as they make the move to streaming and away from traditional television is that they're not constrained by this, you know, 42 minutes of story that if they want to have an episode run a little longer, they can. And suddenly we see the rise of like, 50 minute, 52 minutes, 55 minute episodes, as you know, these writers and directors start letting the material breathe a little bit instead of rushing through it. But for some reason, I've noticed that the tendency for some of these MCU Disney Plus series seems to be going the opposite way. And I, I certainly eyeballed with, with, with great disappointment that the most recent episode of Hawkeye ran at like 37 minutes. Five minutes less than than a television show uh, would have run even on traditional television. Um, now, if that's all you need to tell your story, I guess you know understand. You know, it, it it takes however long it takes to tell your story or whatnot. But I, I hate that this is starting to go you know the opposite way when when somebody promises you six episodes of television uh, in a series like Hawkeye or Falcon and Winter Soldier you expect you know at least 40 45 minutes for an episode and for them they continuously get shorter um i don't know man it's just i, I don't like attrition like if you, i i like my full length episodes and and 36 37 minutes just doesn't feel quite full length i felt like something was missing the whole thing was over really really fast which is a shame too i mean the episode was also very fast paced and very action heavy but it, i i felt a little bit short changed on that i'm i'm going to be completely honest yeah, I, I totally agree with you. For me, and I don't know why I haven't learned my lesson for now, every time I log in to Disney Plus Wednesday mornings uh, and, and, and watch an episode, I'm always duped by the eight minutes of credits. So, like, you're like, oh, this is a longer one. No, it's eight minutes of credits. So, Holy you crap, know. that Marvel logo keeps getting longer and longer. <laughs> I get it, man. It's Marvel Studios. You don't yeah. need four hours to tell me it's Marvel yeah. Studios, guys. So, yeah. So then, of course, you know, as a true Marvel fan, is like you're skipping forward 10 seconds. Is there an end credit scene? Is there a mid credit scene? Nope, it's just credits on credits on credits. Yeah, it's, 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 yeah, it's just sad, man. I just hope that this attrition, you know, doesn't continue and we get like shorter and shorter episodes. But yeah, that's just a nitpick, I guess, because the, the stuff we did get was still fun. All right, Chris, what is your next dislike of the series? Uh, extremely slow start. And I'm thankful that they dropped the first two episodes the same day. I think they kind of knew that, that it, episode one was going to be a little bit strenuous and a little bit world buildy. Um, uh, also, here's 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 an addition. Here's a here's a two a um, Jack, the step the soon to be stepfather, a little bit on the nose with literally a mustache twirling villain. So yeah, extremely slow start. And Jack, I mean, is is pretty archetypal. Yeah, you know, I didn't mind the slow start, but then again, I've, I've mentioned before how I'm not one of those I need an action beat every few minutes people. Um, and I think there was some heavy lifting to be done because on the one hand, they had to introduce Kate and kind of establish her as a character. And at the same time, they had to do something very similar with Clint because Clint was almost a complete, you know, blank slate leading into the series. He has now more character than he ever has had. So I'm I'm okay with the slow start. I understand the criticism. Um, 
but it didn't really bug me. I was very much um, interested in the characters, and that carried me through the first two episodes quite nicely. All right, Dave, what is your second dislike of the series? Dude, again, this is super nitpicky. But uh, in the third episode, you get, you know, um, kind of uh, homage to the comic books when Kate sort of sketches the Hawkeye costume from the comics on like a napkin and says that that's what Clint should be wearing. Uh, and the argument that Clint, Clint makes about, you know, I'm, 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 you know, more of a spy, I'm supposed to be nondescript, blah, blah, blah. I totally get that. But I wish they would just stop constantly taking pot shots at comic book costumes. I mean, this this started way back with, like, the first X-Men movie, you know, when they're all wearing black leather and Cy- Cyclops makes the crack about the outfit saying, what, well, did you want to wear spandex? And I'm like, dude, shut up, okay? <laughs> just, 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 just shut up, okay? And stop disrespecting the source material. One of the things that I thought we were finally getting beyond was the constant belittling uh, of, you know, comic book costumes. Um but but here we are, you know, like like phase four now of the MCU, and we're still cracking jokes about comic book costumes. And I'm so tired of that, both for DC and Marvel and comic book adaptations in general. You know, own it, okay? You are adapted from a comic book. There are colorful costumes involved. And as long as that makes sense within the story, those colorful costumes should be ad- ad- adapted in some way, you know? I, it's the same thing of the constant, never-ending discussion of the trunks on Superman's costume and whether they translate well to screen. They're part of Superman. Translate them to screen. It's just that simple, okay? Don't keep dissing superhero costumes. It's just so annoying. Well, and I think, you know, in in we talked about this exten- uh, extensively previously, it's like nothing really stands out about Clint. He's just... a a nondescript shield agent with a bow and arrow because he's clad in the, the standard default attire of a shield agent. It's, it's all black and whatever. And I think, you know, this would have given him some, some characters, something to make him stand out. I mean, even in like age of Ultron, the big upgrade to his suit is like, he has this sort of tunic. So like, while you want to sit there and cast aspersions, it really would have done some, I think, some some character work that was much needed. Yeah, I totally agree with that. All right, where are we at? We got what one more dislike here, Chris? Yeah. Bring it. Enough with the battle in New York. Good Lord. Why do we have to stay in 2012 so much? Like, I, I get it, the interconnectedness, it's a blessing and a curse. It's a double-edged sword. But can we please leave the Battle of New York alone? Everything does not stem from that. I thought I thought we were getting a little heavy-handed with the snap and its repercussions, but we went right back to the Battle of New York. And didn't they have, like, Ant-Man show up there or some hero that was not there in the Battle of New York? I think I saw uh, come across the timeline. But, yeah, I, I'm, I'm done with the Battle of New York. And if we never go back to the Chitauri, I'm, I'll be oh so happy. I totally agree with that. I hated the whole Chitauri thing and hole in the sky thing anyways. I mean, how many hole in the sky scenes do we need in, in, you know, action movies and science fiction movies and superhero fare? Oh, look, the monsters are coming out of a hole in the sky. Yippee. Um, Easily the weakest part of the first Avengers. Um, I I understand that they wanted to root um, Kate's... Uh, obsession, fangirlishness over Clint in some kind of event where she encountered him. And it seemed 
easy to link it to something that people had seen before. I really do wish, however, that they would have done something we haven't seen before, where Clint was on some kind of mission or something um, and ended up saving her uh, in, in, in that way. I think that would have been much more fun and would have been, again, something that would have added some uh, texture to his character to see the kind of things that he was up to when he was not just hanging out with the Avengers. Um, the musical thing didn't bother me quite as much. I don't think it needed to take place during the Battle of New York. It might have been um, more appropriate, perhaps, to have it take place with like a fight with Thanos. I just wanted a singing Thanos. I think that's what it is. Um, <laughs> I didn't think we needed to reference that far back. However, I can accept that. But yeah, the opening scene with, with Kate being rescued by Clint, I think, should have taken on a very, very different look. All right, Dave. Uh, I wholeheartedly agree with your final dislike, and I'm excited to talk about it. Yeah, dude, I just don't like the Ronin situation. I, I never did to begin with. It seems so disconnected and odd for Clint as he was, you know, semi-established in the Avengers movies. But even more so, I was hoping that the Hawkeye series would shed some light on, on his thinking here because there's a huge disconnect. You have Hawkeye, a guy who's hanging out with the Avengers, Thanos shows up and snaps his little fingers and his family melts away. And instead of trying to go, you know, help the Avengers fight Thanos or something, his solution is to put on some kind of ninja-looking suit and murder a bunch of low-level street criminals that all had nothing to do with his family vanishing. So, you know, the notion that he loses his family... Put, putting him over the deep e uh, end in some way. I understand that. But the way he lashed out made absolutely no sense. He might as well have put on a dog costume and, and ran around an animal shelter biting people. I mean, it's just, it's completely unfocused, unmotivated, and it makes no sense. And I was hoping that we would get some kind of further explanation for that particular behavior. Why? put on the ninja suit, why get a mohawk cut, and why start cutting down random criminals that had nothing to do with what happened to your family? It seemed so weird, and it continues to see, seem so weird. And if we're going to make the whole sins of, of Hawkeye as he was Ronan the centerpiece of this series, we are going to have to get a better understanding of his motivation for even becoming Ronan to begin with. And I hope they take the time at some point to do so. Kate is already suspecting something more is going on here, although she hasn't put two and two together that Hawkeye was Ronan. Um, but once we get to that point, perhaps he will offer some kind of explanation for what he was thinking when he did that. Um, but as of right now, there is none, and it just seems so weird. And it's weighing down the series to me. We keep referencing Ronan. Ronan killed, you know, Echo's dad and all that. But why? Why? What was the point of all that? Everything that has to do with the Ronan storyline makes absolutely no sense to me. Why, in direct response to your family disappearing, do you all of a sudden become this vigilante street level exterminator like of like it, it doesn't make sense why all of a sudden are you turning into this ninja cosplay batman like it doesn't make sense to me 
And then how in the world can Kate not put two and two together that he is very obviously Ronan? Like, come on. None of this makes sense. It was the inclusion of it in Endgame made no sense. It almost feels like, oh, look, this is a popular thing from the comics. Let's just shoehorn it in here with no explanation. And then we get an exclusive Hawkeye series that is based around this character. And there's still little to no explanation. I don't, I don't get it. None of it makes sense to me. Well, we are definitely on the same page there, Chris. The whole Ronan thing was just weird. It continues to be weird. All right, folks, that's our thoughts on Hawkeye. What did you think of the first three episodes? Feel free to find us on social media and let us know if you agree or disagree with our points. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at NerdByWord and individually at ThatNerdChris and at ThatNerdDave. After our final break, it is time for Nerd Commendations. Stick around. All right, ladies and gentle nerds, here we are. It is time for our weekly... And Chris, I see that you have once again dipped your toes back into the world of DC Comics. What did you find? I found the most beautiful creation in the comic book medium to have ever existed, Dave. It is an absolute masterpiece, and masterpiece does not even feel sufficient for what Kelly Sudeconic and Phil Jimenez have created. I'm talking about Wonder Woman Historia, the Amazons, that were released this past week, and I'm I'm absolutely obsessed with it. Uh, it's it's so beautiful. Every page is a tear-inducing, like work of art. Um, so this goes way back into the millennia of ancient Greek mythology and uh, Queen Hera and the goddesses of the Olympian pantheon are dissatisfied with the behavior of men and the violent and their violence against women. And they present their 95 theses, if you will, towards Zeus and the gods and Zeus in typical Zeus fashion dismisses it. And then the goddesses take matters into their own hands and create the Amazons. And then you have the introduction of Hippolyta who is trying to save this child and then she encounters the Amazons. But it is just an absolute beautiful like tribute to like womankind. And, you know, as a person who was raised by strong women and unfortunately saw the women in my life go through so much um, just awful stuff. And there's a particular scene in here that, that really hit me hard. And there is this beautiful scene that's drawn by, by Jimenez that in this motif of ancient Greek pottery that depicts all of the acts of violence against women throughout the history of humankind. And just seeing that as, as someone who has loved ones that are survivors of abuse, um, it, it just really hit home. And then, you know, you go into these elaborate character designs of all the different tribes um, 
and you know the the history nerd in me the humanities nerd in me and just this reimagining of the greek pantheon i mean the goddess aphrodite is depicted as a black woman who has a direct uh you know implication of the venus de willendorf and so my history nerds will know what that is but it's just everything is spectacular um i read it digitally and as our our listeners know that fiscal comics i've kind of moved away from i just don't have the space or the storage i immediately rushed to my lcs to pick up a physical copy of this there's a gorgeous olivier coppel um variant cover as well everything about this i just want to keep going back and the only nitpick that i have is that i have to wait until the spring for the next issue but wherever you are go read wonder woman historia of the amazons it's absolute masterpiece it'll make you emotional it's beautiful and it is a magnum opus from both kelly sue DeConnick and phil jimenez go read it right now yeah i'm a big kelly sue DeConnick fan and i'm a big wonder woman fan so this has definitely been on my radar i've also seen some some shots from the interior art on uh on social media and i am so intrigued i think the art looks absolutely gorgeous i've not read this yet but it's definitely on my radar um i, I really like the creators involved i you know and you, as you mentioned uh, you were raised by some strong women uh, as was i uh that was part of my life as well i had a lot of strong women in my life that that raised me and and influenced you know me growing up and i have you know the, the deepest respect and, and admiration for womanhood because of that. So I'm, I'm very, very interested in reading this and, and hearing your ringing endorsement is definitely um, just more fuel for me to want to pick this up. And special shouts to my dear friends, Hermes and Yanis. You can find them at Aurora's wind and at the Hermeister for putting this on my radar because I would not have known about this. So, so thank you for bringing it to, to my attention. And uh, it's just a beautiful, beautiful book. All right, Dave, uh, you're you're back with uh, with Dick Grayson, I see. Yo, Dick's my man. So um, I, I, it's it's very very clear to long term fans of Dick Grayson, Nightwing, that writer Tom Taylor has been knocking it out of the park with the, his current run on the series. He's kind of reinvigorating Nightwing after a, a series of really poor decisions by DC Editorial and a series that really didn't live up to expectations in any way, shape, or form. And so reading the main series of what Tom Taylor has been doing has been absolutely a blast. This week, though, we got a standalone story um, still written by uh, Tom Taylor, but uh, this time with art uh, by Daniel HDR and CN Tormi. Um, and the story was a lot of fun for a number of reasons. Basically, it is a team-up story of Dick Grayson, the first Robin, and Jason Todd, Red Hood, the, the second Robin, who famously died at the hands of the Joker. But, you know, as these things go, ultimately got better, thanks to a Lazarus pit. So... um. What is so good about this? Uh, and, you know, especially considering it's a standalone story and it doesn't really factor into the larger arc that is happening right now in Nightwing. Well, I think what it does extremely well that very few writers have neglected is it actually creates an interesting dynamic between Nightwing and Red Hood and an interesting history between the two characters. Um, 
there was not a whole lot of really interesting interaction between these two, especially in flashback form. But this 48-page annual spends a good almost half of the issue flashing back to the early days of Dick Grayson as Nightwing after he had been, quote-unquote, fired uh, by Batman. And um, our friend uh, Red Hood, Jason Todd, was actually serving as Robin. So basically the story goes that uh, Batman is away on you know, a mission. He's displeased with his new Robin for some reason. And Alfred picks up the phone and calls Dick Grayson and says, hey, listen, you need to come out here and maybe talk to this kid. And what you get is this really interesting relationship that is formed between them that feels in a lot of ways like two brothers, which is in a lot of ways what they are ultimately. And so, you know, contextualizing um, this relationship as two brothers who are very different from each other, but still have love for each other and have each other's backs works incredibly well and then plays into the you know, main storyline of the annual in the present day where somebody is framing Red Hood for some murders and they team up to figure out who's doing that and why. It feels almost like a buddy cop action movie in the present day scenes and sort of, you know, a a family, you know, drama between two brothers in the flashbacks. I really, really like this issue. Uh, enough to recommend it by itself. You really don't have to be up on what's going on in the current Nightwing run. And I think this one might convince you that uh, Tom Taylor is the guy to really get you into a Nightwing series. I'm a big, big fan of this issue. Highly recommend it. Yeah, I'm definitely intrigued by this one. I think I think Jason Todd, you know, aside from being my son's all-time favorite uh, superhero character, um, I really want to dive into this one because I think it's, I think it's a really complex character and, you know, found family is one of those, one of those literary elements that I just always eat up. Of course, you know, being an X-Men fan, but uh, so I'm, I'm definitely intrigued to check this one out. You know, it's interesting too, because I am kind of the opposite of your son when it comes to Red Hood. Jason Todd is somebody I'm really cold on. I thought much like, uh, Uncle Ben, he's sort of a character that is more important dead than alive for what he symbolized for Batman. And I was pretty um, iffy on when he returned. And then he floundered about for so many years without a clear direction or, or, or any really purpose within the larger Bat family. I think they're starting to slowly um, fix that problem. And it, it, the character is, is resonating more as of late. And stories like this definitely help. Um, you know, define him a little bit and his role in, in the larger Bat family. So I'm I'm very very glad that I picked this issue up. So, and this is just completely coming out of left field as as like a like a big picture type thing. Would you would you say that um, like just him being juxtaposed against Dick kind of creates that dynamic that you were looking for? I think it is definitely something that helps. Red Hood by himself very often felt like Punisher light. Uh, now, very recently, they decided that he was going to give up the guns and 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 fight without them and stop, you know, basically killing. He's carrying around a crowbar as his main weapon now, which is a little on the nose considering that's what the Joker used to kill him. <laughs> but um, yeah, I think I think Jason Todd is in desperate need of people to play off of, which is why, like the first few storylines of his own series uh, a few years back, Red Hood and the Outlaws, not the new 52 version for crying out loud, stay as far away from that as possible. But the the, the Rebirth relaunch actually was kind of good 
uh, it had like Bizarro with him and, and I think Artemis from the Amazons. And he had interesting characters to play off of. And then he, he became sort of better as a character for that. He definitely is in desperate need of, of juxtaposition, of, of interaction with all other characters in, in order for him to really sing. By himself, he always felt like Punisher Light. And now that he's not even reusing guns anymore, you know... It, it's it's kind of hard sometimes to define him as a character without those relationships. Alrighty, folks, that's it for another episode of the Nerd Byword podcast. We have survived 80 episodes together, and we are so glad that you are still listening. If you uh, enjoy what you have heard, please find us on your favorite pod- pod- podcasting platform and give us a a rating, a review, subscribe, so you never miss an episode. We want to hear what you think, and thank you so much for listening. And you can also find us on social media for your comments, uh, answers to questions. You can uh, hit us up on Twitter and Instagram, at NerdByWord, or individually at ThatNerdDave and ThatNerdChris, respectively. And as always, stay well and stay nerdy. The Nerd Byword is written and produced by Chris and Dave, two nerds with a love of all things pop culture. The podcast features music by Al Jimenez with additional drops composed by Joe Biondi. Our show art is by Ashery Design. Find us at nerdbyword.com and wherever podcasts are available. Mm-hmm.